This week's episode of Screen Talk is presented by the SCAD Savannah Film Festival. Presented by the Savannah College of Art and Design, the SCAD Savannah Film Festival is the largest university-run film festival in the U.S. and a distinguished stop on the festival circuit leading up to the Academy Awards. Over eight days of cinematic excellence, the preeminent University for Entertainment Arts brings the best of the industry to its student filmmakers. And now, straight to your devices with this year's all-virtual experience October 24th to 31st. Watch major award contenders, must-see documentaries, riveting shorts, industry-defining panels, and much more as you connect with fellow fans, award-winning filmmakers, and star honorees, including Millie Bobby Brown, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Ethan Hawke, Jennifer Hudson, Samuel Jackson, Tessa Thompson, Stephen Yun, Rachel Brosnahan, Glenn Keane, and others. Don't miss the world premieres, directorial debuts, and captivating conversations. Tickets and passes are on sale now. See what's streaming at scad.edu slash filmfest. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here for this special live recording of Screen Talk, the latest in our monthly series. I'm Eric Cohn, joined as always by Ann Thompson, and we've got two very exciting guests today. You know, the last few months we've had programmers, we've had executives like Ted Sarandos on, but today we get to hear from people who actually make the stuff. And having Ted Hope and Christine Vachon here is especially exciting because Ted's just finished up his run as an executive at Amazon Studios. Christine is celebrating a very important 25-year anniversary for Killer Films, an incredible uh, accomplishment on so many levels, especially in 2020. And what do you think is particularly significant about us having these two together right now? What I love about these guys is that they, they I've known them as long as I've been in the business and, and they're old friends and they've worked together many, many, many times. And I, want, I, I thought it would be fun actually um, for you two to go back to when did you first meet and how did you first, what, what were some of the projects that you worked on early in your collaboration together? Ted, I don't remember how we first met. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't allowed to meet Christine for a while because uh, I, I had this business partner named James Seamus and Christine was his friendship, his business relationship. You know, and you know how sometimes, you know, like in a, a couple in a divorce might uh, say like, oh, we get, I get these friends and you get those friends. This was like pre-contracted divorce. You can't talk to Christine, <laughs> she's mine. So, so we had to have like a stealth, but before you could have like a stealth romance, we had to have a stealth plan to kind of figure out how we got to, to meet. I, I do remember, like we had already met, but I think, uh, I remember getting very drunk with you at the Petite Carlton uh, one year at Cannes, and I just and I and I just said, "She's a keeper. Like I got to <laughs> I got to make sure that I'm with this person for the long haul." I've had uh, some good times with Christine and Cannes too. <laughs> so I think you know uh, we had done a couple of things with Good Machine, but like Safe, for example, but. Ted and I didn't really work together. I believe the first movie was, uh, we had both seen uh, Todd Solon's Welcome to the Dollhouse. We both approached him, you know, by ourselves and said, sure, would love to talk to you about whatever you're gonna do next. He, I believe, told us both, he had nothing in mind. And then I think about a week later, reached out to both of us separately 
with happiness and said, I want you to do it together. And um, so he got I, you together. I like that. I never it was, knew that. It was a forced marriage. Yeah. Forced <laughs> marriage, but it worked, you know, like within five minutes, I realized that, you know, Ted would read all, like, you know, the, the contract with the parking PA um, and, uh, and say, I was like, why do you even care where the trucks park, Ted? You know? Um, and, uh, and I was like, you know what? He's doing all the things that I don't want to do. So it seems like a good, a good partnership. What would you say are each other's strengths and weaknesses as collaborators? Well, I, before, before, uh, I think Christine just, I'm not sure whether Christine described a strength or a weakness there <laughs> on my part, but I, I, was, I was just thinking, you know, you know, it's really hard to collaborate with people for large, for many, many reasons. And although both of us have always had partners in our business in every way that we do, and Christine's a great collaborator, there was something from the very beginning that I knew we would always find agreement uh, and you didn't have to legislate in any sort of way that, that a lot of times when you're working with somebody, like the question, how am I going to solve these conflicts? Uh, you know, when we don't agree and I never felt that with Christine, like that was going to be an issue that, that I trusted being heard being seen, being recognized that my voice would would matter. And I assume she trusted the same, you know, with, with, with me, but that, but that's not a given at all. Like that's what's that's wrong right. with society. Like we, we know that. And, and Christina said some challenging things to me, some difficult things to, uh, to me that have helped what I do along the way and make me see things from different perspectives um she's not afraid to do that and i'm grateful that i that i was able to participate in that so i you know ultimately i think it, it's that that you know that christine has your back even in disagreement mm -hmm. along the way that 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 she cares what you, what you have to say and will work you know to make sure that your interests are addressed in some way until perhaps they don't need to be addressed anymore well, I, I want to, and now that we've established your history together, I want to get your perspectives on, on how things have changed, but more specifically to talk about the recent history. And Ted, we all want to know what it was like to be on the inside of Amazon and all the crazy lunches you had with Jeff Bezos or whatever. But actually, before we put you on the spot, I'm curious to hear from Christine about it, given, you know, you, you two have worked together on all these projects over the years. What did you make of a guy like Ted stepping up to the kind of the top tier of the corporate hierarchy to get on the inside? Um, you know, honestly, it, it was, uh, I mean, you know, we know each other well enough that I knew that, you know, for the, that Ted was becoming less enchanted with uh, independent production and was looking for something disruptive for himself if that's a good way to put it, like something to shake him up and sort of reignite, uh, um, you know, the kind of uh, enthusiasm and joy that, you know, you really kind of have to have to do this. Um, so I, look, when when Ted took that job, and I don't, sorry to talk about you in the third person, 
Um, I think, you know, I was really excited for him. He also immediately tried to see how he could, you know, work with the people he'd come up with and, and um, you know, in ways that people don't always do when they get those gigs, you know, they often are just like, you know, um, uh, now I'm, you know, I, I, I don't want to be reminded of my, of my humble beginnings in some ways, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, so it was, and, and I think, you know, I think you had a good run, Ted. I mean, I think you made some amazing films. There's still things that we have at Amazon that Ted brought in. And um, I think it'll be a long legacy. All right, so Ted, tell us what you learned from that time. Uh, we don't have enough time in this podcast. To, 50 and, words or less. <laughs> and, and and I do have to wait till the statute of limitations, you know, expires before I can really speak of all. But I, I think about, um, I had a super unique time that I came in there, you know, at the very beginning before Amazon had launched its movie program. I got to work with Roy Price and designing what that what was going to be. And I was hired to make visionary work. Like that job doesn't come in. It's not like, you know, I, I, I have a 19 year old son, you know, who's looking for work in his field. He said, I want to work at a place where I get to do visionary work. <laughs> <laughs> Luck finding that job, kid. Uh, you know, and, you know, lo and when I w was, you know, uh, consulting with Roy and I realized what the job was, um, which was to design a studio around the way films are produced in actuality from a producer's perspective, I was like, please, like, I have to do that gig. And, you know, it was about 50 movies that I got to make there without ever having to do something that I didn't want to do. They were super generous uh, to me, and I was encouraged to be bold. Um, you know, things changed along the way, but like that, that launch and run was really fun. Um, and Christine's right, while she's also a little bit wrong in terms of like that path to it, like 100%, I was super frustrated post say 2008 world financial collapse on what the, the ecosystem of the film industry was at that time, you know, <coughs> could you actually make ambitious films? Like every movie was micromanaged in terms of budget and schedule and sale to things that I didn't think were, were useful to, to, to driving it forward. And I had many different ideas and things that I wanted to test and try out um, along the way. And I was fortunate, right? Super privileged to get to experiment as I did through, you know, both kind of DIY, micro bu budget agnostic movies, you know, and then moving to to, to uh, San Francisco and the film side and then to Fandor and ultimately getting to be in a place where um, Amazon found me. Granted, I had I had to follow Christine Vachon's advice. It was like, Ted, if you really want to do what you want, you better go write a book. So, you know. You both wrote books. Oh, Christine has written one of the great books about making uh, movies. Christine, have you updated it? Is it, ha have you got new editions? No, uh, I'm, you know, I, I'll either write a third book when, um, when I decide to retire so I can really say what I want to say. 
We'll see. I look forward to that. Let's let's talk about killer films, though, because, you know, 25 years is such a, you know, IndieWire is turning 25 next year. And that arc in terms of the independent film landscape in America is fascinating. Ted talking about Amazon is, is one big piece of the equation. Those kinds of resources were not there when you got into this racket. So looking back on kind of the early days, what, what do you consider to be the most dramatic shifts in terms of, you know, how you get movies made that are consistent with the kind of values that compel you as a producer? You know, it's interesting because one of the things that I was going to say before is, you know, th- there's been so much disruption in the past 25 years. And I think one of the reason Killer has has stayed around, sorry, is we, um, we try to find opportunity in disruption. And, um, and you know, the, the end of independent film as we know it has been announced many times. Um, uh, Ted, you wrote something in 1997 about the death of independent film, right? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I think it, like literally, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, look, all, all to say, um, uh, you know, we're still, the, the way we find, the, when, when Killer first started, we were making movies for underserved audiences and finding much to our delight that if you made a, a movie for an audience that never got to see itself on screen, um, you could actually make your money back if you made the movie for the right amount of money. And that was incredibly empowering. I, I and, like your old, your, your old formula for that. It was that plus you actually had a, a more complex business strategy. Never saw themselves on the screen and had a parade. If they had a parade, you knew you could do that. Exactly. So we could have a float. So um, anyway, in some ways, a lot of that has come full circle. You know, uh, I mean, the sort of like the obvious differences, I'd say, are, you know, like, well, you know, DVD going away was a big disruptor. Uh, starting to shoot digital instead of film was a big disruptor. Um, all these different platforms where we can access media, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I feel like we keep trying to figure out as each thing happens, what is, what's the opportunity gained? Well, I think it's also worth talking about the cultural shift. I mean, next year will be the, I think the 30th anniversary of Poison premiering at Sundance. And within a year of that, there was this whole explosion of the conversation around new queer cinema and, and, you know, what it meant for these kinds of filmmakers to be getting their their work out in the world. and, And, you know, given the kind of lack of representation they were getting on a larger stage. When you look back on on that aspect of the legacy, I mean, what do you make of the climate that we're in now in terms of the kinds of stories that can be told and, and reach you know larger audiences? We, we we are at a great juncture right now because the business cannot deny the need to serve all audiences anymore, right? That they were able to overlook it, and and I think that like one of the things that the the instant gratification culture that digital businesses bring us, right? I, you can access anything, anywhere, anytime on any platform is the recognition that 120 years of cinema has predominantly addressed one class of audience, right? And you see it on the screen. 
in terms of who made the movies and who stars in the movies. It's their front and center. And those companies, the streaming companies, have access to what their audience is. And it doesn't look like that anymore. And their business is entirely different than the old business, right? That, you know, yes, there's been disruptions every single year. I use 35 years because I had a crew photo surface on Facebook last weekend from 35 years ago. So 35 years. What, from uh, what crew? Uh, that was from Billy Galvin. Uh, <laughs> which starred, you know, Carl Malden and Lenny Von Dolan, directed oh. by Jonathan Gray. Um, and uh, the... the uh, um, every single year, people have said to me, like, it's all over. Indie film is dead. It's completely disruptive. But truly, like this year, like it's happening. It's for real this time. All right. right? Let's go over and, this. And, is and, the two and, hour movie going right, to be that right, you guys right. believe in going to be dead? For no, real? not at all. Not at all. It's going to have there's going to be golden eras. Uh, 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 I think I just did a Trump gesture. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, 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 of, you know, uh, of diverse content. I, I firmly, firmly believe, because to sew this point up, that the businesses know that their audiences are not represented on screen in front or behind the camera. And their business is not revenue anymore. It's attention. And people are tired of not seeing their perspective in these kind of 60 or so stories that we tell over and over and over again. And they are demanding it. They're in a race because now we're in, we're in, you know, six global streamers, seven global streamers, all U.S. centric, all English language dominant, who have to sign up as many customers as possible. So it only makes sense that we'll have this, you know, wonderful uh change where it's not English language dominant, it's not white male uh, perspectives, everything I think will be changing. So Christine, do you see this as a great opportunity now? I mean, I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're very active. We are, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for indie film is going to be really like those middle movie, you know, those movies, those mid-budget movies, that's what I'm trying to say, because um, uh, they aren't nimble enough to handle the, um, you know, how, the, the challenges like, how do we get insured, you know? Um, how, you know, those, the big blockbusters are one thing and the tiny little movies I think will be okay. But um, those sort of mid-range movies that you put together with some foreign sales-based financing and an equity financier, those are the ones that I'm that I'm anxious. I feel about. like that world has <laughs> become this big, yeah. right? Like the five million dollar movie, something like that. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you're like yeah. a one million dollar movie and your day cost is you know ten thousand dollars, you can put you can have a little you know you can you might you might be able to self-insure to some degree, you know, in case you have to shut down. But if you're a big movie where it's, you know, 200, or not a big, but a mid-level movie where you're talking upwards of $100,000, $200,000 a day, what are you going to do, you know? I mean, we're, we're, I'm on a series. Let's talk now. about the one you're making now. Well, this is a series. It's for Netflix. It's for uh, uh, Ryan Murphy Productions. Um, it's called Halston. It's with Ewan McGregor and 
Bill uh, Bill Pullman and um, Krista Rodriguez and a lot and of other. And when did cast. you first work on the, that script? How, how oh, long? Yeah, I think we optioned the book twenty five years ago. <laughs> wow, there it is. Another that tells you everything. Yeah. Um, and you know, because it's Netflix, they have baked in the necessary COVID costs. Uh, I did a a Zoom with some other producers for the PGA yesterday. And we were spitballing that it's like like another fifteen to twenty percent to work to work in the testing, the PPE, the reduced number of hours, for example, that everyone's sort of trying to shoot for because it's so uncomfortable to be in face shields and and everything all day long. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it's um. It's bizarrely exactly the same and completely different. I don't really know how else to put it. It's like you're still doing the same stuff. The directors, I think, sort of like the fact that there's simply less people on set, you know, because um, uh, because we can't all slam in together and have, you know, 20 people all crouched together around a monitor. So there's no more a, video village. That's right. You know, I, don't, I don't hear anyone crying. <laughs> but... Um, but it is, it is exhausting. The, you know, like Friday, we found out. It must out, be stressful. You, you know? know, what happens when you shoot with a face shield in the rain? Oh, my gosh. Like a lot of people, yeah, are like, you know, not you know, trying to. Wearing tracking devices and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so the two of you uh, during the pandemic, um, I'm just curious, it, were all of your projects able to stay afloat or did you have some attrition? Did you lose some things or things pushed back? Or, I mean, what was the impact of the pandemic on all of your, of your you, you, be, you each have a slate of stuff. Well, you know, for, for me, I chose to leave Amazon officially during the pandemic. So I, I June 2nd was my last day. And uh, I had given notice to them that this was likely my last year, but I don't think anyone ever believes that because the stock just keeps rising. So no one would believe that you would leave. And uh, it was for, for me, like the key, the key things to make that, uh, that decision was I had the, the pleasure of getting to celebrate uh, Glenn Basner's Gotham Award last November, which brought, you know, 30 or more, you know, of his past associates together for lunch and for drinks. And I, I was just around folks that so deeply love cinema and were so deeply loyal to each other and were so committed to trying to make movies better. I was like, I had to get back to that. I miss that deeply. And so um, it was during COVID that I had started negotiating my exit. And uh, officially, officially, I only started with about five projects that didn't have producers on them um, that, that I had brought into Amazon. You know, so nothing was going into production for, for me. Um, during that time, I got involved with many other projects, and uh, that, in in some ways, like I would say, what was really helpful is COVID and the production stoppage brought everybody to do deep dives, both in terms of uh, not just how do they solve the 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 challenges of shooting, 
but how do they solve all production challenges that they have in their movie? And it was super, it slowed everything down to give everybody more attention. I've been able to do real deep dives in development, deep dives in like, how do we advance all the cinematic possibilities within our script when we actually get to shoot and deep dives on how to control the budgets, recognizing that everything's going up 15 to 20%. Right. I, you know, I think uh, talking to, you know, other friends and experiencing things myself, there's like a, a awareness uh, of at, at every studio and platform that they're going to need uh, movies as quickly as they can get them. So lots of folks I've been hearing have been getting movies greenlit or blinking greenlit along the way. And there's a greater accessibility to cast and directors, everyone saying like the response time on decision-making to get involved has been shortened, you know, tremendously. You know, um, you know, uh, I've been able to do some really great work with the filmmakers on my projects, you know, just like, because we have time, we might be in different places, but nobody's shooting except for Christine and 17 <laughs> other productions. Did you but, say uh, there were like 17 projects shooting in yeah, LA? Is that yeah. true? Yeah. That's, I think I read that, but I'm, yeah. I'm not 100%. That There's a lot be. shooting in New York too. Yeah. So. And in Europe and in New Zealand and everywhere. Yeah, it's so true. We, um, we I, I would sort of echo a lot of what Ted says, except we also, you know, we shot, we shot about a third of Halston. So we shut it down knowing, hoping that we were going to be able to come back to it. Uh, we were finishing Todd, Todd Haynes's Velvet Underground documentary, um, which- Congrats on the sale. Yeah, so, uh, and the, the movie's terrific. So that was, that's, uh, that's exciting. We also had, you know, we had two movies that we had at Sundance last year, uh, Josephine Decker's Shirley and Janixa Bravo's Zola, that- um, The two best directed films at Sundance last year. Yeah. And uh, Neon took Shirley out, you know, and uh, A24, you know, we're still figuring, we're still hoping to that Zola will be able to get, you know, a, a theatrical re release at some point. Um, so it's been sort of interesting kind of seeing how that, you know, how, how, you know, the platform release that Shirley was hoping to have, obviously, you know, how that translated into, you know, a different kind of release. Elizabeth Moss was amazing in that. Yeah, it's uh, anyway. It's going to be hard to bring that back, though, for awards or anything. It's just such a long haul. I don't know what, you know, I, I, I can't pretend I know what awards are going to look like this year. I'm just sort of. I don't think any of us We just but ramble on. Trust me, we don't know. No. <laughs> Nobody knows. But we've also, you know, we've been doing a lot of development. We've been uh, really, I mean, we haven't really lost anything per se. I think what Ted says about sort of in, like, it kind of forces you to interrogate your own practices and, and why, you know, whether this is something that this particular project feels right for right now or not. So um, we have let a few things go with that in mind, but for the most part, you know, we're just uh, slowly starting back up again. Well, Christine, I want to ask you about that. Cause when you're talking about Zola, I remember going to that premiere of the Eccles and what a wild, you know, kind of movie it needed that kind of launch pad. And I want to ask you both about Sundance because we had, 
Tabitha and Carrie on here a few months back. Now we know that Sundance is going to be a little bit shorter this year. We don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but we're expecting pretty much a virtual kind of experience. And, you know, but prior to the pandemic, a lot of the conversations about Sundance were already sort of like, what is the future of this thing? I mean, Ted, your company came around, spent a lot of money on some movies there, some of which did better than others. So there was this real sense of, you know, what the value of Sundance is, but assuming that this is primarily a virtual event that's coming up, what do you make of the potential of, of Sundance in 2021? I think it's easier to talk um, about festivals in general and the sales markets in general than say specifically uh, Sundance because the problem everybody is having, but you know, being, um, you know, first of all, like Christine and I wouldn't have had the longevity of the careers that we did if it wasn't specifically for Sundance, right? right. Like, you know, whether like when you ask, like, do you remember times change? Like when, when Christine and John Pearson sold Go Fish, you know, a black and white lesbian movie in the first half of the festival, which up until then the sales were all in the second half was one of those transformative moments for me that I knew business was changing. And I, if I had my druthers, yeah, I would love to go to a film festival and see five to six films a day, you know, every two months, I think I could probably do it. Although at the same time, when I was at Sundance this year, I was like, this is so silly. All of us getting on planes you know, being in closed quarters, like I wouldn't call myself a germaphobe, but like, I don't shake hands at festivals. I don't kiss people at festivals. You know, I don't hug them. I, kn I knew enough by then, like I would be, you know, you know, get ill quickly if I did any of that stuff. But the industry, our industry has relied on this one form of both launch and sale for so long you can start to see some, some of the failures of that process and that we need to come up with other ways to do it. Well, all I the have, festivals are learning new things about how to bring people in from all over the country, how to see things virtually. There's so I'm much more it. access to all these festivals, yeah. which is really I, fun. I do just want to say, though, because <clears throat> I, you know, attending the Venice Film Festival, which I did you know, in person, uh, in person. Um, they let you in. It was up until the up until I was on the plane. I didn't really believe I was going to be able I to. I tried. Go. They didn't want any American journalists wandering around spreading coronavirus. She was reviewing the wine in the lounge. I knew that the world was coming back. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, you know, as as it sort of, you know, as it, as I kind of barreled forward and figured out all these testing protocols that I do before I left and when I arrived, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly I was at a film festival and, um, and watching three or four movies a day and having conversations about them. Finally, conversations about movies instead of about, you know, well, I heard if you lice all your groceries, then, you know, et cetera. So, um, so, it actually restored to a large degree my faith in in the, that that those specific films that have to cast a spell in order for you to appreciate them, love them, have an experience with them, um, 
And it made, it really made me feel that we're not ready to give up that art form yet as, no. as humans. But I, I, I totally agree. And I also like, you know, like you had said something, Christine, that I thought was quite funny of actually how COVID contributed to actually a better screening environment uh, in fest at festivals. Yes, right? there was room to stretch out and enjoy yourself without people no around party. you, right? No parties. And, right? and nobody, nobody dared cough during a screening because they'd be ejected. <laughs> the producer's like, worst nightmare. <laughs> it was really like uh, it was. There was not a cough or a throat clear uh, to be heard. It was absolutely completely silent. But but so let, Ted, let let's yeah let's be real a little bit though about some of our failures to address progress or innovation, right? In that movie theaters have uh, relied on being what they were a hundred years ago for, for so long. Like they actually had very little applicability to modern life. We didn't try to bring them forward. We they were, didn't. The theaters didn't, unfortunately. All of us. All I of don't us. Think, I think that a lot of people saw how they could reform and change their business plan, and they refused to do it. You, you, know, uh, you know, other than, say, like Tim League, I never heard other people really talk about it other than, you know, different gimmicks like three, 3D and, you right. know. Well, maybe that's because it never needed to be a big business in the first place. Because from my sort of quasi-anarchistic perspective on all this stuff, I mean, I love Tim League and we talk all the time about, oh, they, you know, eventized all these different screenings and stuff. But to me, the most exciting thing about the exhibition states are the small, funky micro cinemas and so forth that are way more resilient in times like these because people want to come out and have a communal experience. And that's just a hard thing to build a business model around unless you're talking about, you know, bars and stuff. Okay, so what do you see the future of exhibition and the structure of, of the, I mean, we're not gonna see movies hanging out in theaters for three months anymore. That's just the SPC, Sony Pictures Classics model may not be the one that we see going forward. What do you think? That, you know, not to get, uh, Sometimes when I start talking about things like this, people say, Ted, weren't you once a New Yorker and actually had a edge to you? Because I, I would say like the answer to all this is you got to lean into the love, right? And they're like, dude, you've been in California way too long. <laughs> right? but, but, uh, but I think that's true. Like I, I you know, I, I'm planning some, some things and I had the pleasure of getting to talk to some very smart French producers uh, yesterday at length. And they were talking to me about how when they had the reopening in August, like the, the share, uh, audience share for, um, you know, truly a tour driven or what I prefer to use now is ambitiously authored cinema. Um, you know, what was was way up that there was a demand that audiences had for that shared emotional response that right. helped reflect on a, a greater, like, what is the truth about humanity? Like, people really love that. I think, you know, you saw Brian Grazer and Ron Howard talk about that was how interesting. Movie, you know, will become like, like Broadway. And I think that's true, uh, both Broadway and off-Broadway. Like, we will have let the higher priced event movies that will be, you know, set up in a modern cinema for how we live today. 
Um, and hopefully they'll look a lot like the old cinemas of, you know, 50 years ago when they were truly cathedrals. Um, and you'll have the off-Broadway stuff. But when you go there, you won't have to take out your wallet. Like, it will all be cashless. And, you know, you want to have another cappuccino or that biscotti, just take it and it will hit your account. And you know what? When you look over there and you see that nice couch and chair and think it could work, all you have to do is press that button and it's going to be delivered to your house the next day. Like movies bring us together and they deepen our emotion, right? Like that's like a drug. It, uh, people are incredibly susceptible. And whether you're trying to lead a political revolution or just sell more shoes, you know, like we're only at the beginning of untapping the utility that's there in cinema. And I think that you have to, you know, like, like Timothy Leary recognized, you know, it's the set and the setting, you know, that, that determines so much of what the experience or trip might be. I, get I have a more of a granular question for you off of that, because unlike a lot of people, you've seen under the hood at a company like Amazon in terms of how things perform, what user behavior is. And I don't want to get too geeky about it, but we've spent years trying to understand that on our end because our poor box office guy has to only deal with you know the data at his disposal. And now all of a sudden we're, we're really trying to understand how people watch things at home. So as somebody who believes in the theatrical experience, who believes in all of that stuff, what have you gleaned from being able to, to see how things perform on a platform like Amazon? Again, I don't think we fully have the, the time and I don't want to get locked up in a ex-employee jail. Okay. Uh, we'll but, even ask Christine to tell us what number she's seen. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think you should first uh, recognize, you know, what, that, that this new era is entirely different business goal right? It's not revenue, it's customer acquisition. And why is that, right? Well, not why is that, what, where does that lead us to, right? Because there's tremendous value when you acquire a customer far beyond their engagement in one film or whatever that cost might have once been, right? Um, if you want to understand the, the future of the film business, you should read uh, Surveillance Capitalism, if you haven't already read, read that, that book you know, which, you know, really does talk about uh, the tuning of our behavior via our engagement, right? You know, like, it's it, 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 uh, Shoshana, the, the, the author of it shows up in The Social Dilemma, the number two movie at Huge. evidently uh, on uh, Netflix, which is slightly- It's responsible for people canceling their Facebook accounts across the, the world. I thought was better than the movie. You know, and I, and I firmly do believe that creators of movies and shows um, that originate them should have a right to their, their data that they then generate. And that will never happen in a corporate environment. Um, it will only happen through government intervention. Right. Yeah. Studios are figuring this out. Finally, it's taken them a really long time with their direct streaming platforms that they can have a direct relationship with the customer, which is why the, th the theaters are doomed. They couldn't get together and share their data about the customers. That's part of the problem that they've had. Right. I, I think like uh, we should be so happy and so inspired that by the, the, that the, the, the best and the brightest, the real leaders of our 
culture and industry have made so many boneheaded mistakes right? <laughs> that, that because, because of that, there will always be those cracks you know, where the light gets in, where, where the out, where, where the outliers, uh, you know, break through and hold the door for, for others. And that's how you keep a system vital. Right. So, you know, you think through like the studios were so on top and what, where did it lead? Arrogance, right. Legacy bias, right. Where they thought, Oh, because we can't actually control the, the IP, you know, the, the, the people in front of the cameras, behind the cameras anymore. We can't contract them and own them for the, life, the lifetime. We will maintain control through the sheer amount of capital we have and our prowess in physical distribution. They were asleep at the wheel, right? Not realizing that the fan- Short-term greed, short-term greed, keeping those windows, feeding them, taking all that cash and not, they saw it. They saw where it was heading. They just wanted to hang, and the theaters are the same way. Hang on to the short-term cash as long as possible. I'm not sure they saw it because like, you know, they, they got lapped and lapped and lapped again by the, the fan companies who amassed so much cash they could buy any studio. Right. The Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google um, that they they didn't realize it was a better distribution system up there than just physical goods. And it had already been built and they were late to the party. And exactly as you said, Anne, they didn't realize that that the, the direct relationship with the customer, you know, was actually the most important piece that that then you could start to unlock the utility of cinema. And keep the data. Right? Keep the dead. So, so Christine and, and, and Ted, looking across the spectrum of all these companies, um, where do you see it going and who's ahead and who, where uh, people keep wanting to say that Netflix isn't ahead and then Netflix lost its, uh, you know, got lo- lost, lost some, uh, some numbers yesterday. Uh, their stock went down. What's, what's, what's going, what's going to happen in the next few years? What's the fallout with the studios and, and the streamers? Who's going to come out ahead? You guys work with all these companies. She's, she's on Netflix Dime right now. It's a perfect <laughs> company. Netflix Dime. Um, but we also, I mean, Killer has a deal, you know, on both the TV and film side with MGM. And uh, part of the reason we went to MGM um, was uh, – was because they, you know, they are they they just set up Orion as as you guys know, and they were really seeming to to put their resources into exactly the kind of director driven or ambitiously authored uh, filmmaking um, that you know that keeps us that keeps us in the business. So you know, I we like Michael DeLuca. Yeah, well, Mike and I Mike DeLuca has been one of the most bold executives in the history of, of the film business. Of course, you know, and we, uh, I was telling somebody that we, um, uh, that I met DeLuca on Hedwig, but then I was remembering all the storytelling days. <laughs> wow. That, so that was, you know, that was something else. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I think like the question of who wins, you know, really is going to be, uh, answered by who continues to be the, the, the most uh, boldest and uh, uh, daring of these companies that, that you and have to recognize. Nimble. Say what? And the most nimble. 
But it's yeah, weird. Yeah. You, when you look at Netflix, you see them becoming more corporate. You see them becoming more like the studios. In but, fact, but, if you, you could argue they are the biggest studio. Well, they, 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 they were the first mover. They've maintained their first mover advantage. You know, you have to recognize we are just at people. We may have been talking about streaming wars for about seven years now. Right. But we're just at the beginning. Right. And right. COVID basically gave, gave Netflix like you can run down the field back and forth if few times you know in the in the interim but like it's only this year that the number two streamer amazon released their first film that was released simultaneously around the world with a adequate uh marketing budget that a film that they developed and produced right? which that one are you talking about Troop Zero, I think, came out on January 17th of this year, right? Um, and did very well for them. And it shows a huge change, right? So previously, only the the franchise films and the tent poles and the family films could have a global simultaneous release, right? And this film was a very traditional genre um, told in an aspirational way. Like, what if the bad news bears lived in a 1970s world where gender, race, you know, class no longer were, were uh, realms of prejudice, right? You know, and frankly, people around the world engaged and, and loved it, right? It did super well for, for Amazon, but that's just the beginning, right? And now we're only at, you know, six or seven and they're all US centric, right? So we, we can expect that we'll have at least four five, six more that will be uh, internationally based, right? Asia, uh, Europe, Latin America shouldn't allow the U.S. to fully colonize the world, right? They, 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 they'll presumably uh, put some serious stakes on the ground. And all of these global streamers will recognize a, a real basic sort of thing, common sense. This was clear when I was at Fandor, right? It was clear at, at Amazon. It's clear, I think, for customers that if you want to attract new customers, you want to bring a new offering every week to them, right? So uh, both on features and series. So we're talking about 50 movies for 10 uh, streamers at a minimum, right? Netflix, you know, who tries to address all different uh, audience segments with much more regular engagement, you know, wants to do like, not just twice, but like three times that amount, right? So we're, we are already at a number of saying like, okay, what is that? 500, 800 new movies a year? If executive, the right number of executives existed that allowed each of those platforms to hire, to supervise 50 movies a year, they still couldn't hire those fast enough or afford to because of the competition, great new job market that's opening up for all those film students coming coming out all, all over the, the, the world. But they're not going to. Instead, they're going to rely on the Christine Vachons and Pam Coughlin. The great time to be a producer or yeah. a writer for that matter. Folks who've demonstrated that they can deliver a regular cadence of work at a consistent quality level with minimal hassle. You put Christine in charge, you don't have to worry. You're gonna get a great movie. Like she's never failed, right? Maybe once or twice. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know. Uh, 
Like, this actually tees up some some of the questions. I want to squeeze in one or two questions from from the audience. Yeah, yeah we're coming up on our on our time. All yeah. right, time with you, and I and I want to I want to exploit that by giving some of these questions room to breathe because they're they're really good ones. One comes from Christopher Schiller, who's uh, saying, you know, it's a great time to hear the visionary outlook from producers such as yourselves about how the industry will change. The question is how to give these visionary insights to the last bastion of, of old things, the financiers of indie film. How do we convince them that the new avenues are worth the financial risks? What new arguments can be made to bring in the all important money? I mean, you know, look, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I almost feel like it's the sort of dance we're in say with, you know, the bond companies and uh, insurers, which is, you know, at some point for those companies to stay in business, we have to find a solution. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of, it's kind of a two way street. And I feel with, feel with film financiers, I feel like a lot of them are starting to stick out a toe a little bit, like to see, um, to see what, what, uh, see what the, what, what new models could really, how they could really benefit their investments. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's always hard to, um, teach old dogs new tricks. It always has been. And, uh, that's why, you know, we try, I really try very hard to not be an old dog. And, uh, but um, I think it is, it is slowly shifting. I, I, I've seen that Christine has a lot of puppy play in her. <laughs> no, 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 no doubt about it. But uh, I don't, yeah, I, 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 look, that, that the old model, we've benefited tremendously in America and speci specifically, you know, not only by our own cultures, you know, hard desire to colonize the rest of the world, but also by the, the fact, you know, like, you know, indie film by its very nature is a crime, you know, in that we are free here to exploit anybody to the maximum extent that anyone will notice. And that's what goes on because many people work below minimum wage without a living wage, without health care, without all the other benefits um, there. And, and uh Ultimately, we had a model that allowed the, the bold vision that equity money was to back the, the outliers and uh, regularly remind our industry that their house style, their corporate think, what had lost connection with the audience and, and, and the marketplace, which goes on consistently. And I totally worry what's gonna happen now if we don't preserve a way for those outlier voices to be heard. So yeah. I, I, I basically think that there are four um, possible futures for private equity in America and how, how to dr drive it in, the, in the, the film business. But you have to first recognize the old model the, the shit storm is here. It is collapsed. You can't say I'm going to put in 30% of a budget, use pre-sales for 30% of the budget, exactly. use tax uh, tax and, and and loans for the for the balance. That won't work, right? So you have you have well, the we're still doing it. Yeah, and, you know, because there's yeah. not it hasn't really been replaced yet by a model that is more efficient or that makes more sense. We're having virtual markets. Uh, you know, the AFM is going to start virtually 
right after, you know, right after the election. And we are going to continue to do that. It's just, you know, and we've had this conversation, Ted, for years about how it doesn't work. When, when uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, you know, I have a, a, a plan that I'm working on and I pitched it to only two people and they both said the same thing to me. I pitched it to Christine Vachon and Ann Carey and, they, and Ann, who's known me since film school, said, wait a second, Ted, you pitched this back to me when I first met you in film school. Christine <laughs> said, you've been pitching this idea forever. It's time for you to finally do it, right? But I wouldn't say it's exactly the same plan. It's still driven by the, the belief that a producerial collective can achieve things far better than what anyone on their own can, can do. We'll leave that all for another day. But like- oh, I thought you were gonna pitch it to us right now. No, I wanna hear it. <laughs> we, we can talk about it later. Um, I, wanna, I think we should close out with, I just wanna tie together a couple of questions because we got one question from, from Jay asking for advice to upcoming screenwriters, but then also a question from RLS Adams who's asking, how COVID changed the landscape for unestablished screenwriters who don't have representation. Can an established writer get in without an agent these days? And then finally, probably the most, you know, obvious entry point or the umbrella question for all of this is from Babu, who's asking, um, how does one bring a project to Ted Hope and Christine Vachon? The inevitable question. <laughs> but it's all kind of tied up in, you know, how does somebody, you know, if there's somebody who doesn't have a track record, how do you even aspire to that? I want to use that to point out a, a big problem within the industry, right? That Christine and I came of age, you know, at a time where cost of living was lower, that uh, you, we could move into a community where there were lots of like-minded individuals who wanted to learn the same things. And there were many barriers to that, which helped foster a sense of community and uh, generosity to helping others uh, along the, the way. That the necessities of what independent film was at that time meant we had to learn it soup to nuts. We had to do our own financing. We had to do our own delivery. We had to make sure that the, the bank financing closed, the, the completion bond closed, all of these different aspects. And we shared our learnings uh, with each other. We were able to sustain because uh, it was frankly much cheaper to live for a long time till we mastered those skills. Today's producers who are coming aboard, right? Basically, they, they make do two movies to learn how to do something. And now they're pigeonholed as someone who only does $1 million movies and they will never get their fees up and they won't be able to sustain long enough to ever have a dream of a family or a home, you know, or further education or any of these things. So the, you know, Christine and I have benefited by being holistic producers who worked from the be beginning till forever. And we're also able to look at how to maneuver and ultimately change a lot of what the ecosystem was to benefit that style of living. And that's really hard now. I would point out that you, what you're saying is absolutely true, that both you and Christine are business people and hugely creative people at the same time. And not all producers combine those things as well as you two have consistently. And I want to applaud you both. But I think there'll be a huge need and demand. And the question is, can we build an ecosystem that helps facilitate right. the creation of those producers? 
Right. But we have I a plan mean, for that. You know, one of the um, <laughs> one of the things you know that that increasingly people talk about is that whole the whole notion of mentorship and um, and trying to you know I think I think it's incredibly important for producers especially um, to mentor younger producers because there's just the path is just so much less clear, as you say, you know, and um, uh, and and it's hard. And you know, and because of the competition, I think one of the things that that, that I, I hear quite a lot from uh, producers coming up, you know, they they help deliver the film through that thick and thin movie one, number two, and then the streamer, the studio comes aboard and says, we're ready to give you your break and we're going to give you this fancy producer to work with, right? So people don't get the chance to step up to that next level. Right. You know, we, we never, Good Machine never would have been, survived and all the careers and executives that came out of that if it wasn't for Lindsay Duran and her recognition that if Ang Lee was going to do Sense and Sensibility, you know, James Seamus should be by his side. Like that was an incredible gift that was transformative for all of us and had this huge ripple effect. Hmm. That, that today, I don't think many uh, studio heads or, or even other producers would have the, the, the generosity and insight and, and st strategic thinking to see how necessary that is. You know, um, you know the question of how do you get uh, Christine or I involved in a, in, in a project, you know, um, it is probably... The, the best thing is probably to try to demonstrate how much we're not needed, right? You know, that, that, that ultimately somebody that, that is going to build a relationship with a filmmaker um, is going to try to figure out all the good ways that something could be done, but knows how to ask for help and advice from those that have been through it many times is far more compelling to me than somebody who absolutely needs my help every step of the way. Right. You know, I I've I've been in it 35 years. I, I know the filmmakers I want to work with. Unfortunately, probably two of the folks on top of that list are Josephine Decker and Janexa Brava. But I can't go after them because Christine's working with them. But to answer that question also, because uh, I know it's something that, you know, I, I think people make a mistake when they try to get to kill her just through me. We have a world, a world of like assistants and interns and close, con you know, close contacts and agencies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, relationships with uh, with other filmmakers. You know, the way the way Boys Don't Cry came to me, for example, was through Rose Trochet, you know, who had just done Go Fish for us. And she was like, you know, I heard about this really great project. So there's ways of coming into my world that aren't, you know, being, you know, uh, a, a, you know, jumping, you know, waiting outside of a bathroom booth for me, which has happened before, or, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, or, or doing That's how we met, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, and I think that's really important. And <clears throat> look, one of the things that feels very full circle is when Ted and I started out, I think we had a real sort of DIY sensibility. Like if we don't tell our stories, nobody's going to. So we're just going to do it. <clears throat> we're not going to ask for permission, etc. And I feel like we've come very full circle with that. 
And people have so many more tools at their disposal to actually, you know, shoot something, um, you know, with their with their phone and have a platform where they can, you know, where they can put it up. And so that I would just encourage, there's really no excuse right now to not demonstrate to me that you can tell a good story. I knew this was going to be really fun. We have to stop. I think, um, Ted, I know you have more to say. <laughs> but um, we, we, we won't head on until he actually tells us what he's going to do. But now. I knew that the, having the two of you and, you know, me and Eric are, are that, that we would have a conversation and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, thank you, you for sharing. Yeah, thanks again, both of you. We'll have you back in 25 years to see if everything. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I do feel like I'm kind of getting younger. So that might be possible. Well, Benjamin button thing i can yeah write. i can see that all right thank you again Thanks, buddy best of luck bye bye, -bye.